So of course we respond to all of those calls to make sure the animal is safe. Traffic's going really quickly, we're driving really slowly, a little bit slower, she turns on her lights. I saw what looked like a little fuzzball right in the bottom part of the median. We saw a head pop up, cat's face, it was so exciting, we both screamed, oh my gosh, it's alive! And you know, it was just one of those, like your heart just, you know, adrenaline starts pumping, you're like, we have to get her off this freeway. The animal protection officers do this on a daily basis. Um, they get such a variety of calls. This one was just a little bit more exciting because this happened to be on the freeway. <laughs> Staff at the shelter named the sweet-natured feline Twinkie. The cat had suffered a minor abrasion to its chin, which doesn't detract from her beauty in the least. Oh, we're so happy to say the cat right at this very moment is getting spayed here at Denver Animal Protection. Um, that's part of the process in order to be put up for adoption. From the moment either we get a call to respond to an animal that's already in the community or that a community member does come and bring them to the shelter, we, from intake to vet services to animal care to behavior, our goal is to make sure the animal is in the best con condition and care in order to be put in the best place. Adoption, transfer, or return to their owner. The Denver Animal Shelter provides animal care and protective services for all of Denver County. To learn more about the full range of services, visit denvergov.org forward slash animal shelter. All right, good morning. <clears throat> uh, I'd like to call the May 19th meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order. <clears throat> and I'm going to ask Stacy to call the roll. Stacy is standing in for Edie. Edie is neither gone nor forgotten, but she's not here today. So, uh, Stacy? Jack Blumenthal is Edie. Florian Mass? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Rudy Pion? is excused. Charles Scheibe? Scheibe? Here. Edward Schultz? Here. Auditor O'Brien? Here. Um, first, next item on our agenda is the approval of the April 21 meetings, meeting minutes. Is there a motion to approve the minutes? So moved. Is there a second? Second. Thank you. Any any changes to the minutes? Uh, all in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Thank you. Uh, next item is a briefing on Denver International Airport, Pena Boulevard, 
Improvement Project Construction. Uh, Dawn, would you like to introduce yourself and your audit team? Yes, yes, thank you, Auditor O'Brien. Uh, good morning, audit committee members and guests. My name is Dawn Wiseman. I was the director on this engagement, so before I introduce the team, I just wanna say a few words. Um, as we know, millions of dollars are spent each year on construction projects, and it is important that we have as many eyes on the process as possible. Uh, construction processes can be complex, and sometimes those complexities um, leave room for error. So additional scrutiny on areas such as change orders, pay applications, um, and project management, just to name a few processes, um, is important so that we can identify what those needed improvements are. Now the objective of our construction audits is to assist the city with identifying areas that can be improved and make sure the city is getting the best, best possible value and quality delivered in a timely manner. So I will pass it on to Sonia Montano. She was the audit manager on the engagement and they can get started with their briefing. Well, before we get started, uh, Jim, would you like to introduce the people from the airport? Uh, if sure, you have any you. opening comments, we'd be happy to entertain yeah. those. Uh, so I'm Jim Starling, Executive Vice President um, at DEN, uh, Chief Construction and Infrastructure Officer. Um, so with us today, we have our Chief Financial Officer, Sylvester Lavender, our Acting uh, AIM Development, Senior Vice President Bill Poole, and Mike Cloud, our Director of Infrastructure. Okay. Good morning and welcome. Sonia. Thank you. <clears throat> Just want to introduce my team. We have Chris Wilson, Megan Kelly, and Daniel Summers. And I also want to thank the airport personnel for their help with this audit and the cooperation. Um, we are very thankful for that and a lot of back and forth with you, but we appreciate it. So now I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Daniel and he'll get started with the presentation. <clears throat> thank you. Denver International Airport is the third busiest airport in the United States and is one of the top 10 busiest airports in the world. To reach the airport's terminal by car, travelers must use Pena Boulevard, which is a 12-mile access road connecting the airport to major Denver highways, including I-70 and E-470. In 2020, the airport recognized that Pena Boulevard had reached its life expectancy and needed a major upgrade to keep pace with the airport's growth. The airport developed a 10-year improvement plan to expand and enhance the existing roadway. Seen here in figure one, which appears on page two of the report, the improvement plan is divided into four project phases. Phase one spans Jackson Gap Street to the main terminal. Phase two spans I-70 to 64th Avenue. Phase three spans E-470 to Jackson Gap Street. And phase four spans 64th Avenue to E-470. Our audit focused on the airport's oversight of the phase one contract. In March 2019, the airport awarded the phase one contract to interstate highway construction through a two-step request for proposal and request for qualification process based on best value in terms of cost and innovation to design and build the phase one contract, uh, the phase one project. The original project cost was almost $94 million, which was scheduled to be completed by May 30th, 2022. In June 2020, the airport reduced the original scope of work due to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Figure two seen here and on page three of the report shows the difference in the project before and after the change in scope. Two major changes to the scope included eliminating the work along the outbound portions of Pena Boulevard and electing not to remove and relocate the ground transportation lot. The change in scope lowered the total project cost from around $94 million to about $35 million, which represents a 62% reduction. 
Discussed on pages three and four of the report, the Airport Infrastructure Management Division is responsible for overseeing all construction projects at the airport, including the Pena Boulevard Improvements Project. As of June 2021, the division was overseeing 37 active construction projects, which totaled $2.4 billion. In addition to their own staff, the division hires outside consultants to assist in performing day-to-day -day oversight activities. On the phase one contract, the division hired Atkins to help oversee the design and construction of the project. Atkins and division staff work together as the project management team. The objective of our audit, described on page 50 of the report, was to evaluate whether the Airport Infrastructure Management Division provided adequate oversight of the Phase I Pena Boulevard Improvements construction contract to ensure the city received the work it paid for. Our work included reviewing the invoice and payment process, the contract change process, and evaluating compliance with subcontractor requirements. We review documentation used to support the airport's oversight spanning August 1st, 2019 through December 31st, 2021. I'll now pause to allow questions and comments from the audit committee and airport representatives. Any questions or comments? So let's continue. All right, I'll now pass it off to Chris to discuss what we found. We have one finding which begins on page six of the report. It states Denver International Airport needs better oversight of the Pena Boulevard Improvements Construction Project to ensure the best value for the city. Within this overall finding, we have six sub-findings that relate to the airport's oversight. The first sub-finding is found on pages six through 14. We found that airport and interstate highway construction did not meet deadlines for invoices and contract changes. Specifically, we found three main issues contractor failed to meet established deadlines for invoices and contract change proposals. The airport failed to meet its review deadlines for these same processes, and in two other areas, the airport failed to establish formal deadlines. Our report covers the specific issues in each of these areas, but I'll highlight, highlight several of these for the purpose of our presentation. This slide shows figure three from page eight of the report. The figure shows the issues we identified with interstate highways invoice submissions. Specifically, we tested compliance with the period covered by each invoice, the date each draft invoice was submitted, and the date each final invoice was submitted. As seen under column period covered by invoice, the dotted lines indicate the required one month period, and the dark shaded bars indicate invoices that covered periods longer than allowed. The next column shows when each draft invoice was submitted. The black line indicates the time each draft was supposed to be submitted, so the bars to the left indicate the early submissions and the bars to the right indicate late submissions. Overall, you can see Interstate Highway failed to meet its invoice deadlines a majority of the time. As an example, for the June 2021 invoice located on the second to last row, they submitted the draft 43 days after the deadline and submitted the final invoice 60 days after the deadline. By submitting invoices for longer than the required period and after the deadlines, there is a risk that the airport does not review invoices in enough detail to ensure the payment is only com for completed work. This slide shows figure four from page 10 of the report. Here, we highlight the late submissions for two types of contract changes. The airport can request changes to the contract through change notices and directives. As indicated by the dotted lines under change notices and directives, the contractor must submit proposals indicating the cost and time impact for the change within 20 days of receiving the request from the airport. 
The key difference between these two types of changes is that the contractor can begin work on directives before they are finalized as change orders, whereas the contractor is not supposed to begin work on notices and to, until a proposal is reviewed, approved, and finalized through a change order. The left-hand side of the figure shows the results of our testing for, for change notices, and the right-hand side shows the results for change directives. Overall, the contractor failed to meet the 20-day requirement in most cases, and for change notices 8, 9, and 17, the proposal was submitted over 100 days after receiving the request from the airport. The late proposals pose a risk to the project timeframe and cost. In the case of notices, delays in receiving a proposal could impact whether the contractor begins the work timely to avoid extending the project unnecessarily. And for directives, late proposals prevent the airport from accur accurately tracking the cost and impact of the change. This slide shows figure five from page 13 of the report. It highlights the impact of the lack of a formal deadline to finalize contract change orders. Adjustments to the contract's time or cost are not official until the airport finalizes it through an order. The city's policy states change orders should be finalized promptly, and the airport told us they follow a standard of 10 days. However, this time frame has not yet been formalized. And as shown here, the airport finalized 21 orders after their informal time frame, which is marked by the dotted lines in the figure. In two cases, it took 40 days to finalize the change. As a result of these issues, we make the following recommendations on page 14 of the report. 1.1 is to establish monetary penalties to help hold contractors more accountable for contract submissions. 1.2 is to review and update policies and procedures during its post-project lessons learned meeting to ensure the plans include steps that meet actual practice. And lastly, 1.3 is to update procedures for project management review to formalize review time, times and deadlines. The airport agreed to each recommendation and the implementation dates range from July 18th through August 17th of this year. I'll now pause to allow questions and comments for the airport for the audit committee and the airport representatives. Uh, any comments from the airport on the recommendations? Comments. Comments, you agree? They're on their way to being fully implemented? And okay, questions from the committee? Okay, let's continue. The next sub-finding starts on page 15 <coughs> and continues on to page 18 of the report. The contract requires the airport and contractor to use Unifier as the sole project management system to house support documentation and project information. However, we found the airport tracked Interstate Highway's non-compliant work and the project contingency budget outside of this system, which led to incomplete and inaccurate information. Here, we list the issues with the non-compliant work process on the left side. The airport uses forms to document and communicate issues to the contractor and to ensure these are resolved. However, in our test of 41 work forms, we found 32 did not include the required response deadline, 40 did not document whether the contractor fixed the issue, and 35 did not include the correct dates of the issue and date of resolution when compared to the tracking log. Lack of documentation in this area prevents the airport from ensuring the contractor correctly ad addresses all issues identified. On the right-hand side, we list the issues with the airport's project contingency tracker. Project contingencies are commonly used in construction projects to account for unforeseen costs. 
The airport set aside a project contingency fund to account for these costs, which was tracked manually outside of the project management system. We found the, air, we found the amount approved for the three types of contract changes did not match the source documentation held in Unifier. <coughs> Recommendations 1.4 to 1.5 on page 18 address these issues by ensuring the airport incorporates both processes into their project management system. This will help ensure more accurate and complete tracking. The airport agrees with recommendation 1.4 and set an implementation date of December 14th, 2022. The airport disagrees with recommendation 1.5. In the response to our recommendation on page 42 of the report, the airport said they have already created the workflow we recommend developing in Unifier, which took effect in early 2022. However, as noted in our addendum to recommendation 1.5, on page 49 of the report, staff told us this workflow was not available in Unifier and that's why manual tracking was performed outside the system. Further, staff did not explain this workflow came online for other projects beginning in early 2022. Again, I'll now pause to allow questions and comments for the committee and airport representatives. Any comments on Unifier and whether it's work working or not? I mean. Yeah, so I think it's a timing issue. Um, we do have that um, function in Unifier at this time. This project was started prior to having that workflow in place, so it was just a timing issue. But we do have that for projects, um, current projects that are going on. So in disagreeing, you're saying you don't need to design anything because it's already here. Correct. Right? It's already in place. Okay. Thank you. Any questions from the committee? Okay, let's continue. I'll now pass it to Daniel to cover the next sub-finding. Our third sub-finding is found on pages 19 through 24 of the report. We found the airport did not ensure changes to project costs and time always contained required supporting documentation. Specifically, we found two main issues. First, the airport did not provide cost estimate services and second, contract change documentation does not fully support increases in the project scheduling cost. I'll provide some context around the contract change process before I highlight the issues we identified in our report. The phase one project is a lump sum agreement, which means the contract sets the total project cost and schedule. Because it is a lump sum contract, the only way to change the project cost or schedule is through the change order process. It is crucial to ensure contract changes are justified and any adjusted costs are accurate. Figure 16 here, as well as on page 19 of the report, shows the change notices, change directives, and contractor change requests that resulted in change orders during our testing period. Each change order can include one or more notices, directives, or change requests. In total, the 36 change orders that were approved during our audit increased the project budget about $2.4 million. Of these 36 change orders, 18 were due to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, seven of which were credits to the airport. Beginning on page 20, we found the airport did not provide cost estimate services. The city's general contract conditions require contractors to support each requested change with a cost proposal that includes pricing for labor, materials, and equipment. The airport's procedures say project staff should also provide a cost estimate for each proposed change, which helps limit the risk of overpaying for changes and can be used as a basis for negotiating costs that are not included in the original contract. 
The Institute of Internal Auditors also suggests project owners provide their own cost estimates to ensure a contractor's proposal is not inflated. When the airport issues a change directive, they can include a not to exceed value that sets the maximum price ceiling for the directive. In our testing, we identified 13 change directives that contained a not to exceed value. We requested all internal cost estimates created by the airport for the contract changes in our testing period. However, airport staff said they did not create cost estimates for any of the contract changes, including the 13 directives containing a not to exceed value. For one directive, we found the actual cost of work was more than double the not to exceed value, but the airport did not document the reason why. By not providing cost estimates for contract changes, the airport risked overpaying for the extra work completed by interstate highway construction. Because no estimates were provided, we cannot verify or whether or to what extent this occurred. Discussed on page 21, we also found the contract change documentation does not fully support increases in the project schedule and cost. The city's general contract conditions establish documentation requirements for every change to the contract. Adjustments to the cost must be supported by invoices detailing all costs for labor, materials, and equipment. Adjustments to the schedule must be supported by a forecast detailing whether the added work impacts the contractor's ability to meet the project deadline. Beyond the general contract conditions, the city's fiscal accountability rules also require supporting documentation that provides a clear picture of the, trans of the transaction for every payment the city makes. We sampled 26 contract changes to determine whether each change had the required documentation. We found the airport approved 11 changes without complete supporting documentation. Specifically, as described on pages 21 and 22 of the report, some issues we found include two changes for about $14,000 in extra work did not have invoices for the actual labor and materials costs, two changes that increased the project cost by adding to the scope of work already included in the contract did not have documentation justifying the increases, and two changes to the schedule were approved without the required analysis detailing whether the added work would affect interstate highway construction's ability to meet the project deadline. On page 22, we provide table one, which includes the airport's explanation for each type of contract change documentation issue we identified. On page 23, we discuss the lack of detail we identified within the airport's contract change procedures. Specifically, we found three issues. First, the procedures do not ensure all internal negotiations, meeting minutes, and internal reviews are attached to each change in unifier. Second, the procedures do not include detailed review steps to ensure all invoices and supporting documentation are received, reviewed, and approved before the airport pays for the changes in work. Third, we found the airport has not formalized its internal standards to withhold payment for change directives until they, they are finalized as a change order. Without ensuring all documentation is obtained and reviewed, and without analyzing the effects these changes may have on the schedule before approving them, the airport may be unnecessarily costing itself time and money. Additionally, approving a change without analyzing its impact on the project schedule prevents the airport from monitoring the progress of the project while the airport waits for the most up-to-date project schedule. Based on the issues we identified around a lack of cost estimates for changes, on page 23 of the report, we make recommendation 1.6, which states the airport should develop policies and procedures to provide cost estimate services for design-build projects. 
The airport agreed to this recommendation and set the implementation date as August 17th, 2022. Based on the issues we identified around the lack of detail in the contract change procedures, on page 24 of the report, we make recommendation 1.7, which states the airport should update its contract change policies and procedures to ensure all changes are fully supported before making payments towards a change. The airport disagrees with this recommendation. The response to this recommendation, seen on page 44 of the report, describes a new contract administration guide published in February of this year that outlines appropriate support documentation for invoices that will be included in Unifier. However, the response does not reference a review process that would take place prior to the approval of invoices. We appreciate the airport's action to address our concerns. However, as discussed in the addendum on page 49 of the report, we were not informed new guidance was being developed and we were therefore unable to verify this information during our audit. I'll now pause to allow questions and comments from the audit committee and airport representatives. Uh, comments from the airport. Um, yeah, so on overall, I think what was missing is, is really the record of negotiations. I felt like we, we went through uh, negotiations during meetings with the contractor. It was just never formally documented in that regard. So that, the recommendation that we, and the response that we provided was to record that and make sure it is fed into Unifier so that it's a complete transparent process. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of emails back and forth and negotiations and agreements on what the cost was. So in terms of invoicing, uh, you know, we do have a new invoicing guide that will address the workflow for all invoicing. And so I think there, we have a process. I just don't think it was um, streamlined to make sure that the contractor's responding back to our comments and vice versa. And so I think that's the clarification for the invoicing guide that will help, help guide us in the future. Any questions from the committee? Well, I, I have one. So I'm confused about whether the, um, what, about the findings themselves, though, for change orders. Were, was there a process for which um, the, there, uh, a sign-off was required, but that wasn't documented? Or was there not a process? Was it just an overall um, agreement on what the changes would be and not specific invoices? So, our, so the process starts with either a contractor change request. So they issue it and say, you know, we need, we're requesting additional funding for, for X. And so when, we, when they submit that, they have to submit all supporting documentation and that information goes to our project controls team. The project controls team um, does an estimate verification. They don't provide an estimate and that, that was one of the findings. Um, so they do a verification of, of the, the labor hours, the material costs, all of that and it's all run through Unifier, so it's all documented in there. The, the in-between meetings are what are not, to, not documented appropriately, and that's where the, the record of negotiations is that log to show what we agreed to in the meetings okay, and so emails. If it's in Unifier, that's the documentation, that's the documentation and sign-off, sign I off. assume. Yep, and then it goes into a change order. I mean, it's already negotiated. The change order is just to formalize and change the contract. And weren't there a couple instances where you were paying from the change order rather than from an invoice or the change request, whatever we call it? So we were paying from change directives, which in the yellow book is allowable uh, up to 85% of the estimated cost. 
and that is because we're directing the work immediately and it allows payment along the way until we get to the, the, the agreed upon amount, the negotiated amount. So depending on how long that takes for, for whatever the directive is, it could be two weeks, four weeks, it just depends uh, on the scope of the work. But that is allowable. No questions? No? Okay, should we continue? Subfinding so four, starting on page 24 of the report, states the airport did not ensure all <coughs> invoices supported the amounts it paid to interstate highway construction. Each month, the contractor must submit an invoice detailing the work completed that month. All required invoice components are described in detail on page 25 of the report. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division's procedures require project staff to ensure a contractor's request for payment or invoices are accurate and complete. Figure 7 on page 26 of the report and shown here includes the airport's process for reviewing and paying invoices. After various draft submittals, meetings with the contractor, and review and approvals, the airport then pays the contractor based on an agreed upon amount of work complete detailed in the final invoice. Ensuring a contractor submits an accurate and complete monthly progress report for review is the most common way to monitor a contractor's performance. To check for accuracy of the airport's invoice review, we selected a sample of four invoices to test the airport's review process. We found multiple issues during our assessment these issues are highlighted in the bulleted list on pages 26 to 27 of the report and expanded upon through page 32. First, the project team failed to ensure the contractor addressed all issues identified when reviewing the draft invoices. We found 12 instances across the four sampled invoices when line item issues were not fixed. These included issues relating to line items in the final invoices as well as issues with the narrative portions of the final invoices that the contractor agreed to resolve but never did. Additionally, we found that all four invoices were missing documentation required by the contract, including documentation required for the monthly progress report and entire monthly progress schedules. Appendix B on page 54 of the report includes all missing documentation for each of the four invoices. Two invoices were approved without a progress schedule and two other invoices were approved without a required schedule update. Approving invoices without a current progress schedule and all needed documentation may lead to the airport not tracking a contractor's progress to avoid project delays. Project staff did explain their issues in receiving accurate and timely schedules from the contractor. However, air, the airport's pr procedures still lacked detail to ensure the contractor meets all submittal requirements. Additionally, noted on page 30 of the report, we found unsupported payments for bond costs that total just over $1,000. These bonds mitigate the risk of the contractor not completing the project by providing a backup plan for another contractor to finish remaining work. Because they were not supported with an invoice, the airport could have overpaid for these bond costs. Lastly, we found inaccuracies in payment information across the invoice backup documentation and the two airport software systems, Textura and Unifier, for all four sampled invoices. 
which is described on pages 31 and 32 of the report. Because of these issues found, we made recommendation 1.8, included on page 33 of the report, for the Airport Infrastructure Management Division to update policies and procedures for invoice review, including steps to ensure the percentage of work completed are fully resolved and documented, ensuring all required documents are included, ensuring all checks of percentage of work complete are formalized in the procedures, making sure the progress payment totals on invoice documentation match Unifier, and ensuring compliance with the city's policy to receive an updated schedule of values prior to each invoice submission. The airport agreed to this recommendation with an implementation date of December 14th, 2022. I will now pause to allow questions or comments from the audit committee or airport representatives. Any additional comments from the airport? Yes, sir. Uh, so just a little cl clarification on the schedule. So we always had a baseline schedule from IHC. So there, there was no risk there. It was during the pay application times, there was in certain instances where we issued a change notice. We're asking for pricing for additional work, which required an additional schedule. Um, to show the time impact of that added work. And so um, there was never a risk of not working under a schedule, but certainly there were times where we had, we had to issue or approve the invoice, make sure all subs were getting paid and everybody's getting paid while we're going through that exercise to, to uh, negotiate the schedule uh, you know, increase in time. So. Lorraine? Um, <clears throat> our Textura and Unifier um, <coughs> side-by-side uh, modules or are they I mean what why is the need why does the need exist for textura with unifier having all of the documentation does it not have a payment system with it so it doesn't yeah. are they both Oracle uh, I am not sure so texture is not aim development or the airport's system and so uh, unifier is our internal system for processing um, internal you know the invoices the document control portion of it and then when that is completed and we've gone through all our negotiations and review then the contractor actually it puts it into texture we confirm and then we uh, approve there's four or five different signatures and then it goes through LCP tracker DSB overview uh, prevailing wage all of that uh, outside of our our control so does payment come from that or from Workday? Textura. Well, the Workday is the official receipt and payment process, but Textura is kind of the, um, the tracking mechanism for DSBO, right, to, to, to review the goals, and that's B2G system. Um, it talks to each other, and then LCB trackers for prevailing wage to review uh, the auditor rates. Is it unnecessarily cumbersome? <sighs> okay. No comment. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Okay, should we continue? <laughs> this subfinding covers issues we found with the airport's review of subcontractor qualifications and payments. Details of these issues are found on pages 33 through 38 of the report. There are two key requirements that relate to subcontractor qualifications. As seen on this slide, the airport must provide written acceptance of each subcontractor used on the project and must ensure the contractor certifies each, confirming they reviewed their qualifications. 
However, the airport failed to comply with both requirements, meaning there is a risk Interstate Highway did not select the subcontractors best suited to perform the work. There are also two key requirements related to subcontractor payments. First, the contractor must indicate the subcontractors who worked, worked on each period and the amount owed. The contractor is supposed to satisfy this requirement by providing the airport with letters from each subcontractor referred to as waivers of claim that signify the subcontractor was paid the money owed. This option can be waived by the airport and in which case, at a minimum, the contractor must still list each subcontractor on their monthly invoice that worked in the period and must list how much each is owed for that work. In the case of the Pena Boulevard project, although the airport considered removing the need to obtain waivers of claim, this was not documented. And despite this, Interstate Highway only required waivers of claim from one of its subcontractors included on the project. The same subcontractor was the only one listed on the invoices as well. The second key requirement for payments is that Interstate Highway must enter all subcontractor payment amounts and payment dates into the city's tracking system, B2G. These requirements are important to follow because they allow the airport to ensure each subcontractor is paid what is owed. In addition, the city's Division of Small Business Opportunity uses both contractor invoices and information in B2G to ensure the contractor meets its participation goals for using women and minority-owned construction businesses. To test this second requirement, we compared the payments Interstate Highway made to a sample of eight subcontractors with the information they input into B2G. This slide contains figure nine from page 36 of the report. The red diamonds indicate payments made from Interstate Highway to its subcontractors, and the black dots indicate the payments entered into B2G. As indicated by the timeline of payments for each subcontractor, B2G did not contain a one-to-one -one match with the actual payments made. And in three cases, as shown in the far right-hand side column, the total payment amounts didn't match either. We made four recommendations for these issues, starting on page 37 of the report and continuing to page 38. I'll go through each before I open it up for discussion. In 1.9, we recommend the airport develop a process to monitor subcontractor selection. And in 1.10, we recommend the airport develop procedures to ensure the contractor includes subcontractor payments on each invoice. The airport agreed to both recommendations and set the implementation date for August 17, 2022. For 1.11, we recommend the airport conducts trainings with staff to ensure the applicable subcontractor payment requirements are followed for each contract. And lastly, for 1.12, we recommend the airport evaluates the need for waivers of claim. The airport agrees with both of these and set the implementation date again for August 17, 2022. I'll now pause to allow questions from the committee and airport representatives. Comments from the airport. <coughs> Yeah, so um, to clar clarify, so the contractor at the very beginning of the project requested not to put all of the subcontractors into the system. And the reason being is there's a very, there's quite a few vendors that are either small business or MWB or that need payment more frequently. And so by putting it in, from, from IHE's perspective, by putting them in Textura, that requires then they have to wait longer to receive payment through ACH. And so... That was um, a variance that was requested at the very beginning of the project in which why only one subcontractor is in there. However, they still had to manually input their payments into B2G to make sure DSPL was tracking the goal and meeting the goal. 
So is that what the discrepancy is, that the payments were made offline, so to speak? More frequently. That's why they were reimbursed. That's why the difference in reimbursement amount. I can't verify that, but I believe so. I mean, that's IHC's, how they, their agreements with their subs. We don't have a contract with the subs, but what we did commit to is doing a certification of payment, so it's more transparent to us, so we can see exactly when and how frequent they are paying them after each payout, and so that's that's the recommendation and response. So I'm okay with the number of payments being off. That makes sense to me. It's the difference in the amounts that's a little confusing because if the BTG, B2G payments, that's a, a way of evaluating how well our procedures and policies are working, and so that's that's my concern. Any end, any reason why there's the discrepancy, especially that large one of almost four hundred thousand? Don't know. I, I really don't. Um, yeah, I, th I think the certification of payment. I think that'll help in the future, just so we can see exactly what, who they're making the payments to for each subcontractor. We already have the form in our in our uh, library, so we just need to initiate it and make sure it's being tracked each month. Is there any reconciliation at the end of a project to make sure these are in sync? For payments or invoicing? Yeah. Uh, nope. Uh, we've there hasn't been any disputes on the project, I and mean, that's that's the other thing is if if a sub can dispute it through the texture system, they give them that option, and it's mostly through B2G. But those two systems talk to each other, so if there is a dispute, and that and we brought Tracy Davis to discuss the lien waivers. If there's any questions on those as well, but. Um, it's our understanding that Dottie doesn't have them uh, or has provided a variance, but Den has not to date. So um, there's, we feel there's not a lot of value with the, the lien waiver because, you know, if a sub has an issue with the payment, it'll hold up everybody's payment. And, and so if there's an issue, we can resolve it and they'll contact the prime or they'll contact us to resolve the issue. Um, or the option two, they can file a claim against the project um, if there's a dispute of any sort. So. This all takes place in Textura. Um, some of it behind the scenes that we just, we don't have control over. And so we're doing what we can to monitor invoices each month. And that's the certification payment that we recommend. Okay, should we continue? All right, our last sub finding begins on the bottom of page 38 and states the airport lacks a process to choose the best project delivery method. The phrase project delivery refers to the roles, responsibilities, and contractual relationship between the project owner, designer, and builder. Guidance from the Colorado Department of Transportation emphasizes the need for project owners to select the most suitable project delivery method through a standardized process that evaluates relevant factors, including the project schedule, the level of complexity, and the overall project cost. Additionally, federal guidance outlines a structured approach for selecting and documenting a project's delivery method which includes developing a risk allocation matrix to understand the project owner's risks under competing delivery methods. We found the airport lacks a formal process to ensure a risk-based approach is performed and documented. Additionally, the airport said they followed the process described by the Colorado Department of Transportation. However, the airport cannot provide documentation of their analysis to justify the selection of the design-build delivery method for phase one. Establishing a procedure to ensure an analysis is conducted and documented decreases the risk that the city selects an inappropriate delivery method for a project. 
At the bottom of page 39, we make recommendation 1.13, which states the airport should develop and implement policies and procedures to document the decision-making process for selecting a project's delivery method that aligns with leading practices. The airport agrees with this recommendation and set the implementation date as December 14th of this year. This concludes our presentation, and I'll now pause to allow questions and comments from the audit committee and airport representatives. From the airport? Yeah, I'd just say that, uh, you know, having a, a uh, documented process for selecting the procurement method has been something that I've used in my past. I think that it was done informally, not documented, um, passed out at DEN, so that is something that we're working on, putting together a procedure on looking at the risks, um, the type of work uh, that'll be constructed and, and making the appropriate selection so we can document it. Uh, Florine. Um, so this is a more general question um, regarding the project, but I'm curious, I, I noticed that the um, Ground Transportation Center was originally gonna be relocated, and I assume that's, not doing that is one of the major reasons why the um, dollar amount of the project decreased. Um, so, but that said, I was wondering why um, it was thought necessary initially to relocate the Ground Transportation Center and why is it not necessary now? Yeah, so I don't know if you guys can show the map. So, so really the, the scope of the project and the goals of the project were to address safety, capacity, um, operational needs. And so the, where the ground transportation lot is, and you'll see it here on the map here in a minute, um, there's a lot of conflicting ramps that come into that area, inclusive right. of the ground transportation. There's a lot of traffic. So that coupled with where the return to terminal loop was at, all those ramps were converging into one and then competing to go to the west or east side of the terminal, right? So there's a lot of, they call it weaving. So you're trying to jump over all the way over here Been to there, try and get that. to the west. Yeah, <laughs> so, with that. so that was part of the safety improvement and operational, quite frankly, there was a, be a benefit of moving that ground transportation lot down to Jackson Gap uh, at the time. You know, with COVID hit, it changed everything. Uh, it changed our operation, it changed a lot of things. Well, and now that the, the return to airport is at Jackson Gap, that alleviates some of the issue with the Ground Transportation Center? Yep. Okay. It does, and, and Mainline Pena too, right? So that's, that's the critical safety piece, Ground Transportation as well, but the bulk of the traffic's on Pena. And so it's making sure that everybody's lined up in their lanes knowing where they need to go before uh, they get to that point. The More signage. Point. Yes. And <laughs> Would Overhead be nice. signs. More and, signage yeah. would be nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So that concludes the presentation. Thank you. Um, I want to say, you know, the airport is a massive operation, and I appreciate the the difficulty of all the projects you have. They're they're huge construction projects. I think you're always going to have construction projects out there. Uh, and I do want to underscore the importance of up-to-date policies, procedures, documentation, all those kinds of things that demonstrate to the public that we're good stewards of the public dollars. So thanks for everything that goes on out there. And I know it's been a tough couple of years, but from what I'm reading, it sounds like traffic is, passenger traffic is back up to pre-pandemic levels. So uh, keep up the good work. Thank you all. Right. Our next agenda item is a briefing on the clerk and recorder office. 
recorder's office, the fair election fund. Are we in search of the clerk? <laughs> I saw him too. Clerk will be here shortly. I've lost him. <laughs> he was here. Was and disappeared. I don't know. It wasn't my day to watch him. What happens when you turn your back? It, all the time. Well, Andy, welcome. Uh, <laughs> I, I can get started. I'm, I'm ready to go. You've just been from up oh, there's the clerk. <laughs> no, thank you. I reject that. <laughs> clerk Lopez, good morning. Welcome. Hello, Mr. Auditor, <laughs> other independently elected official. <laughs> um, Dawn, do you have any opening remarks? Oh, uh, yes, I do. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, so we just want to point out with the municipal elections right around the corner, it's important for us, it was important for us to complete this readiness audit just to identify some risks in the processes that they're developing uh, to administer the Fair Elections Fund. So it's important to note that compliance with laws and rules um, are important as well as the execution of the process to administer the election. Um, in order, that, in order that they get a, a good, successful result and to achieve what the voters envisioned in 2018 to promote equity and fairness in the election process. So with that, I will pass it over to uh, Pat. Did you want to do introductions prior? Or? Um, I'm going to ask the clerk if he'd like to introduce himself and the staff. And if you have any opening comments, we'd be glad to entertain him at this point. Thank you, Mr. Auditor. And, um, Members of the audit committee, thank you so much. Uh, Ed, it's been a long time since you and I have shared, a, shared this room, but it's actually good to see you. Um, uh, to my right is Andy Sequeres. Andy is our um, administrator for the Fair Elections Fund and uh, for our new campaign finance system. He has been um, very diligent in the last year, last couple of years actually, in making sure that this system launches on time on budget, and it's everything that we've ever dreamed dreamed of. It's now in phase one, heading into phase two, and three. Um, and then to my to my uh, to my left is my chief of staff, uh, Miss Audrey Klein. Um, I don't know if you wanted to. I, I could make a couple of comments just just right out the gate in terms of sure. Um, you know what what uh, what we have in front of us. Um, I really appreciate uh, your your guys' analysis um, and our in your diligence in performing this uh, readiness audit for our fair elections fund in preparation for the 2023 municipal election, which will be held on April 4th, um, not in May, 
because of the recent changes. Um, so make sure that that date is in your calendar. Um, we agree that uh, both audit findings um, uh, are, 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 are important. Uh, we we um, will fully implement these findings um, no later than August 1st. Uh, the public can be assured that our office is ready to implement the program and begin making uh, payments to the qualified candidates on August 15th. Uh, since my election, we hired a dedicated campaign finance team. So you, you see Andy um, and Nick. Nick Mann, um, if you put your hand up, is, is part of that team, uh, which the agency lacked, as well as an, uh, you know, as an undertaking uh, to do an RFP uh, that is, um, <clears throat> you know, the completion of Searchlight, which is our, our, our engine in terms of, um, sorry, my voice is a little raspy today. Um, so Searchlight Denver is something that we've completed through our RFP to prepare for the Fire Elections Fund. It, it you know, to have a Fire Elections Fund uh, for the first time, have publicly campaign, publicly financed campaigns, um, it is quite an undertaking. It's something that's it's part of modern elections uh, practice and law. Um, but we had a jalopy of a system and a method of being able to track and make public um, those, uh, those, those campaign finance reports. It was always heck. Sometimes it was a spreadsheet uh, that was very simple out of Excel. Sometimes it was handwritten. Um, and, or typed and then submitted and photocopied and you know scanned and made into a PDF. Um, a lot of this has been a huge undertaking, but we have in front of us something that is an amazing system because we've had an amazing team uh, be able to implement that and work with a great partner uh, to do that. Nowhere else in the country do we have a system like this on a municipal level, I could tell you that, and it's only in phase one. And finally, even though the audit field work period ended in early February, you know, our office has not stopped preparing for the program uh, implementation since this report has been written. As a matter of fact, we've made additional progress and we're ready to implement the program. So, Mr. Auditor, thank you. Thank you. Patrick, you want to introduce yourself and your team? Yes, sir. So I'm Pat. This is the audit team. Next to me is John Michael Steiner, Julianne Mann, Daniel Demarcanian, and we had two other people that worked on the audit. Kristen McCormick, Todd Green. Um, I agree with everything you say about your team. Uh, Clerk Lopez, we couldn't ask for a better agency to work with. You guys, your staff, highly knowledgeable, very responsive. Um, the effort that they've taken since our audit, you guys were great, so thanks. It makes our job easier. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Get the day off today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not far till August 15th. Uh. <laughs> Do you want me to repeat that, Andy? <laughs> All right, I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, the background begins on page one. In 2018, Denver voters approved the Fair Elections Fund to publicly finance certain campaigns and promote transparency and equity in city elections. The fund is meant to encourage community involvement in elections and reduce the influence of large donors. Candidates participating in the Fair Elections Fund uh, agree to accept lower campaign contribution limits in return for public funds uh, that match every smaller donation they collect. Along with public funding, the fund also pays for administrative costs. The Fair Elections Fund is subject to requirements in city code and the city's election rules. 
Uh, effective January 2020, the city must pay $2.88 for each Denver resident into the fund every year. The money comes from the city's general fund. It is not, ad not an added tax. The Fair Elections Fund can have a maximum of $8 million at any time. For each qualifying campaign contribution of $50 or less, the Fair Elections Fund will match that amount by nine times the original contribution, as shown in Figure 2 on page 2 of the report. So in the example shown, a $50 donation would receive a $450 match uh, for a total sum of $500. For a contribution to be considered qualifying, the contribution must uh, come from a Denver resident, include a receipt showing the donor's name and address, and include an acknowledgement verifying the donation was freely given. Candidates who participate in the Fair Elections Fund are subject to lower contribution limits uh, and more reporting requirements. Unlike participants in the Fair Elections Fund, other candidates have higher contribution limits. All candidates, whether participating in the fund or not, are required to report all contributions. Candidates are limited in how much they can receive in matching funds. Uh, for example, candidates for mayor can receive no more than $750,000 in public financing for their campaigns. As shown in figure three on page five, the clerk and recorder's office has three divisions. The campaign finance unit within the recording and public trustee division has two staff members and oversees the fair elections fund and the city's new campaign finance system. The clerk and recorder's office aims to provide customer-friendly processes that are efficient and transparent, records that are easy to access, and elections that are accurate, secure, and convenient for voters. The campaign finance unit's most recent strategic plan says the unit wants to be a nationally recognized agency. To fully comply with city code, the clerk and recorder's office developed a new campaign finance system uh, called Searchlight Denver, which it implemented in late February 2022. To create this reporting system, the Clerk and Recorder's Office hired MapLight, uh, a nonprofit organization that focuses on campaign finance research. The city contracted with MapLight in December 2020 to build a system for Denver that would improve how the Clerk and Recorder's Office manages, validates, and reports campaign finance data. The new system was also designed to help city staff manage the Fair Elections Fund. The audit scope and objective are on page 33. The objective of this audit was to evaluate the clerk and recorder's readiness to administer the Fair Elections Fund uh, ahead, of ahead of the upcoming city election in April 2023. Spe specifically, we evaluated whether sufficient policies and procedures for the Fair Elections Fund are in place so it can comply with city code and the uh, city's campaign finance rules. We also looked at whether safeguards were in place to prevent candidates from misusing publicly funded campaign contributions and whether the clerk and recorder's office has plans to evaluate how well the fund is working over time. The scope of our audit included evaluating policies, procedures, and regulations for the Fair Elections Fund, uh, as well as the Office of the Clerk and Recorder's responsibilities for those documents. The time period we reviewed was from November 6, 2018, uh, which is when voters passed the ordinance governing the fund, through the end of our audit field work on February 3, 2022. And that concludes the background section of the report. Uh, with that, I'll go ahead and open the floor for any questions or comments. Any questions for, yes, Ed? Just some mechanical questions. First of all, I'm imagining that most of Denver residents don't even realize this exists, even if they voted for it. Um, it's fascinating. <laughs> Can't wait to see how it plays out. 
when the city reaches $8 million, does it just have to stop putting money in? Is that how that works? Yeah. Sure. So there's, there's sort of two mechanisms. Um, if we hit the cap and that there's additional candidates requesting money, one of two things happens. We can go back to council and ask for an additional disbursement, potentially. That's up to council sort of decision if they want to or c can find additional dollars. But if for some reason there's not additional dollars available, um, what would happen is all candidates that are in the fund would keep the money that they've received and then would revert to the non-fair elections fund limit. So if candidates have gotten all their money early in from the fund, they can spend it however, and then their limits would, would essentially double. So for a city council candidate, it's $200 in the, the fair elections fund non-fair elections fund candidates to get 400, it would double the limit. Thank you. Is the, the f how much is in the fund now? I don't have an exact number. I know we've gotten our, th our second disbursement of this year. I believe we're about four and a half or five million, but I'd have to get the number. But if you. it ever hits eight million. No more transfers go in, correct. And um, the qualifying period, it talks about 50 days before the election. So February 13th is the end of the qualifying period. Correct, and it started, it started January 1st, 2020. It's a long, it's a, it's a long qualifying if period. If somebody sure. takes a larger gift and then changes their mind, can they, what can they do? Then? They cannot join the, they would either have to refund the excess um, or they would not be eligible for the fund. And um, one more question, I guess you answered it. It was about the 750 cap. Um, So, so there is if there if if a candidate is run into a runoff. So if candidates say find themselves in a runoff, which would be all offices except for at large, which elect the top two. Um, if you find yourself in a runoff as a candidate, you get a 25% one-time disbursement of everything you've gotten from the fund previous. So if you got a hundred thousand dollars from the first round for the general, for the runoff, you get a twenty-five thousand dollar one-time check for the runoff. But you couldn't collect more qualifying contributions. I was under the impression that there were uh, camp, uh, campaign donation limits in place anyway. Is that that's true, right? There were, yes. And, and so, so if a person doesn't choose to be part of the campaign fund, what are those limits? So it depends on the race size. Right. Um, for mayor, it's $500 if you're part of the fair elections fund or $1,000 if not. What the law did change was reduce both the size of the limits. Previous, it was $3,000 for mayor. Um, as well as reduce the number of um, entities that could give. So LLCs are no longer allowed to give directly to political candidate campaigns anymore. So it sort of reduced it. Um, and quite frankly, the reason we built Searchlight, if anyone has ever used the old system, there were very few safeguards because we had to hand add up things over PDFs over multiple months and years to see if someone went over an additional amount. So we've taken it really from the Stone Age to the internet age. But I think for us, um, uh, it was critical to build a new system to ensure that in the system we know that you know, Bob Smith, the second he gives his $50, it's matched up to that and then up to 200, but he can't give say over, you know, 201, it, it issues a notice for us. In the uh, time for which a, a, a candidate can apply for that funds, 
begins in August or it's it, it began in 2020 it began in 2020 we had some folks do it right at January 1st on 2020 um, and I think I was brought on I think five days before the city shut down for COVID it's been an interesting uh, runway but I think for us um, the last they can qualify is February 13th right before Valentine's Day and then our is it retroactive it is not so it yet so um, in the sense of the money that they've they've collected as long as they've done an intent we can pay out we don't pay out any amount until they get a, a threshold of qualifying contributions so city council you have to get a hundred qualified denver city and county residents um you if you got 99 we don't issue a check until you hit that hundred but then you get it for the hundred correct yes yes correct So I know this is called the Fair Elections Fund, and you referred to somebody not in the f in this fund <laughs> as the non-fair elections. <laughs> and I don't have a suggestion, but that doesn't strike me as a good label for people that are not participating in the I have fair a lot of humorous fund. responses to that, but I cannot. Um, <laughs> I will not. Uh, I will almost I'll not do that today. Yes. Yeah, we we referred to them. It's in. Sorry, uh, we refer to them as a traditional campaign, uh, you know, a non-publicly funded internally. We just say, are they non or for? Because it triggers certain thresholds and, and sort of workflows for us. But, um, but yeah. Okay, thank you. You can tell I'm a nerd about this stuff. Should we proceed? Yeah, I'll go ahead and pass it off to Julius. Thank you, Jane Michael. Finding one beginning on page eight of the report states that the clerk and recorder's office lacks fully developed policies and procedures to administer Excuse the Julianne, could you make sure you're speaking into the yes. microphone? Thank you. Finding one beginning on page eight of the report states that the clerk and recorder's office lacks fully developed policies and procedures to administer the fair elections fund. The office did not finalize required policies and procedures before launching its new campaign finance system, Searchlight Denver in late February, 2022. For office staff, comprehensive policies and procedures are not expected to be finalized until this month. According to staff, there were no adequate policies and procedures in place for operating the previous campaign finance system. In addition, the loss of employees knowledgeable of the old campaign finance system resulted in the need for current staff to create a comprehensive set of all policies and procedures. While not all required policies and procedures have been finalized and created, we were able to review all drafted documents. On page nine, we found that all available drafted policies and procedures do not provide sufficient detail for new and existing staff to adequately manage the Fair Elections Fund. According to federal standards, an organization should document responsibilities in enough detail that staff members can perform their duties and that management can effectively monitor the staff's work. We found eight key areas with insufficient policies and procedures in place. Starting on page 10 of the report, city ordinance specifically prohibits participating candidates from accepting donations from certain types of campaign committees. We found that the office lacks finalized policies and procedures to ensure campaign contributions to participating candidates come from valid sources. Continuing on page 10 of the report, the office also needs to address candidate notification of application approval for receiving public funds. As of February 2022, there were no procedures in place to notify a candidate within 10 days of application approval as required by city ordinance. According to city ordinance, candidates receiving public financing from the Fair Elections Fund must agree to participate in certain public debates with their opponents. The office does not have policies and procedures to ensure the public debate requirement is administered correctly. 
For page 11 of our report, we also noted incomplete procedures and policies ensuring the timely and accurate payout of fair elections funds. According to office staff, the calculation of projected payments following city ordinance will be an automated feature within Searchlight Denver. However, we were unable to review the campaign finance system's functionality at the time of our audit. The office also did not have training policies in place as of early February 2022. City election rules require the clerk and recorder's office to offer online and in-person training to candidates seeking fair elections funding. Without appropriate training, candidates may not be fully informed of the requirements for accepting public financing. In figure six, on top of page 13, we illustrate the campaign finance reporting process for candidates who receive matching public funds. Per city ordinance, the clerk and recorder's office is required to audit two types of campaign finance reports. These financial reports contain the number of contributions received and amount of expenses incurred. Candidates participating in the Fair Elections Fund also need to provide supporting documentation for those reported contributions and expenses. However, as of early February 2022, the office did not have policies and procedures in place for auditing reports. Because city ordinance does not provide specific guidance on how campaign reports should be audited, we reached out to seven cities to better understand leading practices. Out of the seven cities, we received responses back from four, New York City, San Francisco, Seattle, and Berkeley, California. During our comparison of their procedures, we noted that two out of four cities audit all candidates and campaign committees that receive public financing during and after an election cycle. The audits, for example, ensure that all reported financial transactions are accurately recorded. While office staff intend to audit, no policies and procedures on set audits were available at the end of our fieldwork. As continued on page 14, we noted that the office does not have documented policies and procedures in place to verify candidates only accept small dollar contributions. In addition to ensuring criteria for match eligible contributions are met, the office is also required to verify contribution receipts for eligibility according to city ordinance. However, as of early February 2022, the office had no policy or procedure in place to ensure submitted contributions are eligible for public funding. Per office staff, the newly implemented campaign finance system, Searchlight Denver, will be used to verify qualifying contributions via the system's automatic adverse verification feature. As shown in figure seven on page 15 of our report, the, Denver's address, uh, the donor's address is verified by running the address through several systems. First, the state voter registration system, then the geographic information system, and lastly, through the US Postal Service records. Since the address verification feature was operational during our audit, we were able to test the system and confirm that the system validated our selected addresses correctly. Per page 15 of our report, Denver's automatic address verification tool is more advanced than what the four cities we had spoken with utilize. However, we also noted that all cities take additional steps to validate contributions in addition to checking the donor's residency, unlike Denver. Lastly, on page 15, the office did not have policies and procedures in place to ensure matching public funds are spent on only campaign-related and eligible expenses as outlined by the city ordinance and election rules. In comparison, two out of four cities we corresponded with have specific procedures in place to ensure all campaign expenses comply with applicable restrictions and are reported accurately by verifying the expenditures with supporting documentation. We find it imperative that a comprehensive set of policies and procedures addressing these areas are developed and implemented as soon as possible. 
By doing so, the office will be better prepared to oversee the fair elections fund and ensure the fund has the impact voters intended. Therefore, recommendation 101 on page 16 of our report says that the clerk and recorder's <coughs> office should, as soon as possible, develop and implement policies and procedures that meet the requirements of city ordinance and election rules as applicable. We also recommend that the office ensures only certified candidates receive money from the Fair Elections Fund. The city accurately calculates the matching funds and pays them on time. The city offers online and in-person training for candidates who receive the matching public funds. Only match-eligible match contributions are approved. The office audits candidates' campaign finance reports and ensure participating candidates spend the matching public funds in line with election rules and city ordinance. The clerk and recorder's office stated that they agree with the recommendation. I will now open the floor for any questions or comments related to finding one. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I see you agree. Is there any additional comments you'd like to make on this? Yeah, I, so one, we agree uh, with the recommendation we are a, uh, a moving target, so it's like a, you know, so it's going to be a snapshot in time in terms of what we're doing and where we're at in terms of the progress uh, that we're making. Um, like I said, it, it, it's 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 been really helpful. This actual recommendation and finding has been really helpful for us. So uh, in terms of identifying the gaps, so we really appreciate that. It's helped guide our efforts um, and priorities, and in terms of prioritizing what we need to do to prep, prepare for that first disbursement. Um, that's why our implementation date is August 1st. Um, you know, we're going to continue to redevelop and look at policies uh, and new policies in alignment with the uh, new searchlight system that we that we talked about and also code and will they'll be completed prior to the first payment uh, from the Fair Elections Fund. Andy, I don't know if you want to take it other details yep. in there. Yeah, I think to touch on a couple of those things, um, when we went through our field work, the system wasn't complete and we couldn't finalize the policies and procedures because we didn't know where the buttons were going to be and the things were going to be. Um, the majority of, of what has been stated has been has been completed at least in a much more detailed draft plan and is in the process of getting completed. But we take this extremely serious. Um, you know, we are we are dealing with taxpayer money. And for me, um, that's what keeps me up at night is it's a lot of taxpayer money. Um, and so I think for, for us, we feel very good um, that we can hit this target and demonstrate at any time a lot of these, these features. Um, this system is, is helpful and we've taken the feedback from the audit um, and we've started to produce some additional steps to go out and do verification of citizens uh, that are submitted for qualifying contributions outside of just the address verification. And we work very closely with a lot of these folks. Um, I think it is fair to say New York has, I think, 163 people on their fair elections fund team, and we have two. So um, it's a scale of size, I think. But we, we are also working very closely with more uh, same size cities, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, et cetera. Um, so we're, we work very closely in tandem with them and they all want our system now. So it's great for us. But I think, um, we've seen the pitfalls in how people have tried to break it because people have tried to break it in the past and we've learned from that and, and are continually to adapt. Any questions from the committee? Um, clerk Lopez or maybe Andy, one of the things you have to do is to assure that there are debates. That that sounds like a lot of debates, given the list of, uh, well, there's 13, 14, 15, 16 offices. And times two. 
times uh, two, right? Yes, and I'll turn it over to Audrey, who's sort of spearheading that. Um, uh, that that was based on New York. Um, the, the law was written based on New York. In New York, they only do the citywide offices. Here, they want it all the way down to the individual offices. Um, we don't have the full plans scoped out for that because those don't take place until really February of next year. But I'll turn it over sort of Audrey to. But but it is a lot. Uh, it is a lot. Uh, thank you, Mr. Auditor. Uh, yeah, a lot of debates. Um, I think what's really interesting about some of this is that um, our office is not actually the one that will be administering the debates. Um, it's, it's sort of our charge to sanction debates. So our first step is working through the community engagement team that is still fairly new to this office and the, and the public affairs team broadly um, to first of all um, educate. Um, we need to talk with groups uh, that could possibly be hosting these debates um, gauge their interests and also educate them on the, the sort of um, <laughs> the requirements that are in code for what each debate can look like because it is quite specific. So all of these things are in motion, but it's definitely going to start with an education piece and then start working towards um, building out uh, a, a group of folks that are interested in hosting them. So it is a large project. We're excited to sort of bring you along with us as we work it through. Well, and I know a lot of those debates take place in the evening, so you'll be having late dinners. Uh. Correct. Or no dinner at all. It happens to me sometimes. Well, we, Mr. Auditor, well, part of that is that we want to make sure that we, we have eyes on the ground. And, you know, we only have two folks administering the campaign, uh, campaign finance system and our campaign finance section of our office. Um, if you've ever paid attention to our logo, we try to educate people in the four kind of arms of, of what we do as elections, city clerk, um, recordings, and uh, public trustee. We're now, now, adding, now adding the fifth, which is campaign finance in its own team and its own division because of the kind of work that is gonna, is gonna, gonna arise and, and, and the challenges that we have to meet to meet that. And that it does include sanctioning these, these debates. Um, this is written into law. You have to, in order to qualify for this, for this dough, uh, you have to be able to argue, right? You've got to be able to debate. And so, um, you, know, you know, there's a lot of different interpretation on what a debate is. We're not lawyers. It's not our job to, to interpret that, but it's our job to make sure that it's happening. Um, it's just a good thing that we don't have an elected dog catcher because <laughs> that right there would be problematic <laughs> for us. There's a charter amendment. <laughs> dog catcher. Okay, should we continue? Thank you very much, Brittany. Daniel? Okay, great. Um, so finding two, uh, beginning on page 17, mm -hmm. states that the clerk and recorder's office has no strategy to evaluate the success of the Fair Election Fund. Uh, so federal guidance states that program evaluations are critical components to any government program as they inform staff, quote, whether government programs are achieving their intended outcomes as well as possible and the lowest possible cost. These plans should be uh, planned for early on during a program's design phase developed with the program's goals in mind, and shared with interested stakeholders. Uh, at the bottom of page 17 and the start of page 18, uh, we determined that the staff did not uh, fully understand what developing a program evaluation plan would entail. However, they indicated their they plan to conduct some form of long-term program evaluation plan in 2023. Uh, According to federal guidance, program evaluations uh, should be developed prior to the start of a program, otherwise staff risk being unable to collect data when the program begins. Given this, we discuss on page 18 
that the clerk and recorder's office should develop an evaluation plan no later than August 2022, when the first payments from the fund are dispersed to candidates. Uh, continuing on page 18, the clerk and recorder's office shared their ideas for how they might assess the fund, including whether city, go uh, city ordinance governing the fund will need to be altered. However, establishing an adequate program evaluation plan requires significantly more planning than what was shared with the audit team. For example, program evaluations typically entail developing performance indicators or milestones and collecting data about a program's performance and outcomes to assess its effectiveness, efficiency, and impact, among other things. To further solidify the importance of a formal, <coughs> a formal program evaluation plan, we spoke with four cities and found all four have some form of program evaluation plan in place. In table one of page 19, uh, we can also see three of the four are required to conduct program evaluation plans on a reoccurring basis. Finally, towards the bottom of page 19, federal guidance recommends communicating the results of program evaluation with relevant stakeholders and the public. Doing so would strengthen the fund and promote transparency, which is a core value of the office's campaign finance unit. Uh, ultimately, a well thought out evaluation plan is important to ensuring the fair election fund meets the intent of city ordinance. Given all this, our recommendations for finding two are on page 20. Recommendation 2.1 reads, before August 15th of 2022, the clerk and recorder's office should design and implement a plan to evaluate the fair elections fund to ensure it continuously collects data and analyzes performance indicators to assess the fund's effectiveness, efficiency, and impact before, during, and after municipal elections. This an the analysis should be well-documented, involve relevant stakeholders and the public, and serve as the foundation for ongoing quality improvement and management, decisions making, uh, management decision-making regarding the Fair Elections Fund. And the agency did agree to implement this recommendation by August 1st of 2022. And uh, for finally, for our second recommendation, uh, before August 15th of 2022, the clerk and recorder's office should develop formal protocols to communicate with relevant stakeholders and the public about evaluations of the Fair Elections Fund to improve the fund's performance. The agency agreed to implement uh, this recommendation by August 1st, 2022. Uh, so at this time, I'd like to open the floor for comments from the agency or the committee. Clerk Lopez, any additional comments? Yes, I, we appreciate it. Um, thank you, uh, Mr. Auditor. We're actively working on uh, developing our um, and, and planning our strategies to evaluate the program. It is a brand new program. I know when you put that slide up, it looks like we're a bunch of slackers, but it really isn't. I mean, I mean, you got to consider Berkeley's up there and all these other, you know, high achieving um, cities. We are also high achie high achieving. Um, it's just so new that you know. For us, using our system, putting <coughs> strategies together, refocusing re our priorities so that we have the nuts and bolts all tightened up before we take it for a spin has been priority number one. Um, so we do, we, do, um, we do agree with the recommendation and you know, we're going to um, uh, work on developing some of these strategies and have them in place before August 1st, before the first payments go out. And then that report will be provided to the public by the end of uh, 2023 in terms of the evaluation of the program. This is the first run, right? So we wanna be able to look at it um, and pay attention to you know, uh, the nuances of the fund, what works, what doesn't, what can we improve. Um, we're gonna have a lot of candidates and it's gonna be a, uh, a, a race where you're gonna have an open seats for the mayor's office and city council. 
both citywide and also in, in, di in various districts. So it's gonna be rather interesting, but we're gonna have eyes on it. Um, for 2.2, I'm glad you brought this. I'm glad somebody brought this up because this is totally bragging rights for us. I come to this role as a former city councilman, but before that, as somebody who's been really engaged in, in, in civic participation and really kind of strengthening the civic engagement muscles of our city. Um, they don't teach civics anymore. Um, and turnout is uh, consistently low in some of these off-year elections because people don't really think that it matters uh, and that their vote don't matter uh, when, it, when, it, when it comes to some of these smaller elections. And they don't understand that role, that, that impact. So what we try to do is we've, we've, I've assembled a team um, which is a, a, communica a communication, I'm sorry, a civic engagement team that pairs with our public affairs team, which is, which is our, our communication squad, so that we can actually go into every single nook, nook and cranny and take what we've got um, in, in terms of our operations and what we do in the clerk and recorder's office, whether it be campaign finance or elections or certifying your documents or, 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 or marrying you or talking about foreclosures. We're basically taking what we're doing into these communities. And we've been at it for a couple years. We do have one vacancy that we're, um, that we're looking to, uh, uh, to fill. But um, this has been um, our efforts to educate the public, engage the public. This is the vehicle in which we're gonna put the campaign finance education in as well too. So um, if you were to visit us on our booth at the Cinco de Mayo, right next to the, the, the gallon margarita booth, um, you would have seen like right next to your gallon margarita booth a pamphlet that talks about the Fair Elections Fund. And we were out there engaging folks talking about that, registering people to vote, up, updating their information. This is something this office hasn't done in quite a while. I don't wanna speak out of, out, of, out of turn or anything else. It may have been done in the past, but not since I've been paying attention as a city councilman or just doing the same kind of work uh, before I was a city councilman. So I feel real confident in this, in, in, in the progress in terms of meeting the, the, um, uh, the recommendation. Um, and I think this is something that you guys will be very pleased with once you see, um, and you know, with any kind of follow-up. This is, this has kind of been, this is the baby that I've brought to the, uh, to the world in terms of um, reintroducing civic education, civic organizing back into elections and civic participation. Well, thank you. Um, any comments from the audit committee? I have, I have one other Laurie? question. Sure. Um, since you're now gathering uh, information regarding individual citizens' contributions to campaigns, is that going to be public? Yes, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. <clears throat> yes, and what we are really excited about is now, if you go to denver.maplight.org uh, and we can get it to everyone, uh, you can slice and dice the data in any way that you want going back all the way through 2015. Um, so you can go sort of trail back and you can see the historical reports transitioning between three different systems trying to get all the data to line up has been a challenge, but you could see all past history. So if you wanted to see what, you know, Bob Smith has given your neighbor to and who they've given to, it has all of that information. Um, also, we've implemented data visualization so you can see how much each campaign actually has gotten and spent and how much their opponents have spent and raised against them, how much outside entities have raised and spent, spent against them. So um, you can search it down to, you know, really a granular level, both at the candidate and at the issue committee and the political action committee and the ballot committee 
uh, area <laughs> in all one portal. And then next phase for us will be lobbying and ethics. You'll be able to get all that data as well. I, I like the campaign um, transparency from the standpoint of, you know, what they've, what they've, um, I was about to say earned, <laughs> what, what, what uh, collected, thank you, <laughs> what they've collected and what they've spent. Has anybody raised any concerns about uh, privacy issues with donations or contributions though? So contributions are a public, they've always been public. Um, we do work. Do they have an open records request no, though? No, no, no. It's, oh. it's at the state, federal, local level. You can search, it's, if you make a contribution, it's a, it's a, it's a public record. That being said, there are safeguards if you are a protected person. Um, so if you are a judge or a police officer or a protected class, you can actually have that information redacted from the system. That's a system that will be rolling out for us shortly um, in a screen. But um, yeah, if you make a contribution over a certain threshold, your name's public and public forever. Over a certain threshold? Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I, so um, in, in Denver, anything under $50, you don't have to report occupation and name and, and things. So, um, but you know, I think you'll see from us in the near future, some potential changes that we'd like to see to the law to increase transparency around that. But at the federal level, for example, anything under $199 doesn't have to be reported. Um, so it's just as like a big conglomeration of like, they raised $700,000 in under $200 contributions. The second they get to $200 and one penny, then their name becomes public and, and we follow a similar sort of structure. And in, in the past, if I may add on to that, um, it's always been that way, um, except extracting the data and having to do the research on who gives to who has been, it literally, you have to take research methods all over again and, and, and really go pour through poor handwriting and missing information and everything else. This system makes it so that all you had to do is enter a name, click on it, and there you go. It'll populate everything. If you can, um, the contributor, the independent expenditure, the campaign, the various, I mean, I'll use myself as, as an example. My reports when I was a city councilman, um, when I first ran to the campaign that I, that I had for clerk and recorder, you're able to go in and, and see. And it's, I mean, what we're trying to do is actually go back in time and um, turn the hieroglyphics that we got um, on our last reports that, you know, from, from, from before computers and then populate it so that we can actually, you know, quantify it and have it available for folks. It's literally a, we, I'm surprised that we haven't got a bunch of um, roses and like chocolates and stuff from all these researchers and, um, and journalists and stuff because we basically have done their work for them. Um, so, I mean, we would have to disclose it. That would be, that would be the, that would be the second and third phase because what we want to do, what the, the vision is here is any one of us as a, as a, as a, as a, as a citizen can go in, you know, and when I say citizen, just a, a, a walking, breathing human being, um, to be able to go in, click on this and not just access campaigns, but to look at financial disclosure, to look at, um, ethics reports. Because this is absolutely critical um, to the um, to the way in which we comport ourselves in the political realm. It's become a lot more vitriolic, and there's a lot of accusations. This person's bought off. I mean, how many times have you ever heard of somebody say, "Oh my, this politician's bought off. They're all bought off. This person's been bought off by that." Well, man, go ahead and look on your phone to see if that's true. 
it helps level, it, it helps educate folks and it, it creates an opportunity for folks to be able to not have to go to uh, a, a university to take research methods and pay for that class. And there it is right there in front of you, right? So it, 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 it makes it accessible and that, that's one of the cornerstones of what we do is transparency, accountability, and accessibility. And I think we share that value, those values with you. Um, I want to say thank you and your staff, you know, certainly for the cooperation throughout the audit uh, and your responses to the audit. I believe that this will result in a better program uh, that we all can be proud of. So thank you very much. Uh, on its way to become a national leader if it's not already. Okay. <clears throat> Pressure. <laughs> thank you very much. So the next item on our agenda is general business. Uh, our next audit committee will be June 16th here in the Par Widener room at 9 a.m. Um, is there any other, <clears throat> excuse me, general business to come before the committee? If not, I would ask to go into an executive session. We have our independent auditors here to discuss, you know, some information about an on, our ongoing audit of the city and county of Denver's financial statements. So I would need a motion to go into executive session. So moved. Thank you. Is there a second? second? Thank you. All in favor of the motion, say aye. 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 Okay, any opposed? We are in executive session. <clears throat> as soon as that green light goes out, there it goes. <clears throat> Thank you for watching Sidewalks Entertainment on television. Don't forget, after the show, you can visit us on social media. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, SidewalksTV.com. Welcome to Sidewalks Entertainment, the award-winning entertainment project featuring celebrity interviews, music, artistic talents, and more. I'd like to welcome Jody Sweeten, Beverly Mitchell, and Christine Lincoln to the show. Let's welcome Tamara Tooney, the one and only Harry Connick Jr. Good morning, Harry. Thank you so much for Good being morning. here. Good morning. It's nice to be with you. Hosts Veronica Castro, Lori Rosales, Richard R. Lee, and a team of correspondents bring to you the biggest names in Hollywood, as well as music from recording artists from around the world. Previously seen only in Northern California, the show now airs around the country on regional cable networks, college television stations, and local TV stations. Join us at Sidewalks Entertainment as we bring to you a new path to arts and entertainment.
Matthew. Huh? I know that a lot of times, okay. Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am, and what you say really does matter to me. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me, and they make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for always being my biggest fan. Thank you for talking. Talk, they hear you. We have the world at our fingertips, inspiration in our touch, and power in our hands. Our hands can build relationships, frame ideas, and empower communities. And it doesn't stop there. Right here, in our hands, we have the power to save a life. If you see a teen or adult suddenly collapse, call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest. The power is in your hands. The thing to remember in this black box, right, is that this is a safe haven. You can't really do anything wrong here. You just have to be present. When we do improvs, when we deal with guests, no matter what it is, I mean, the idea of, uh, of acting is sort of investigating the human experience. And so that's what we're doing here. We're doing that in conjunction with trying to find out about our history as entertainers in this business. And so the black box contains a whole world which you are now a part of. So, once again, welcome to the Black Box. All right, everyone, welcome back to Sidewalks Entertainment. All right, joining me today are two talented artists. You might remember this actor from Scandal or Eureka or Justice League. He has a long list of roles on his resume. We have Emmy-winning actor Joe Morton joining us today. Plus, we have celebrity acting coach and casting director and producer Tracy Moore. And together, they are hosting a groundbreaking series called Inside the Black Box, spotlighting the world's greatest artists of color, reflecting on how their complexion affected their journey to success. I'd like to welcome Joe Morton and Tracy Moore to Sidewalks. Hey, Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Hi. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Joe. Good morning to you from San Francisco. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm so glad to welcome you both to Sidewalks. And Tracy, I think we're kind of in your old stomping grounds. <laughs> you are in, born and raised. <laughs> I miss right San on. <laughs> well, you know what, Tracy? You, you've done some wonderful and amazing things since having been over here and, and you're doing some inspiring things, along with Joe as well. And I'm hoping that before we get into Inside the Black Box that we can kind of, you know, flash back a little bit with both of you because you guys have borne, I mean, you guys have done so much work with, you know, Joe with all of his extensive work acting, Tracy with your many hats in the entertainment industry over the years. I mean, for both of you, if you can briefly share, um, what was kind of the time that you knew it was, this was your calling in the work that you're doing? For me, I mean, um, it started when I was in college. I actually entered Hofstra University as a psychology major. Um, we were taken into a theater at some point to sort of see a skit about what our first year in school might be like. Uh, when the skit was over, um, the, everybody left the theater and I somehow could not get up out of my seat. I was mesmerized by the work light on the stage. And I thought to myself, well, I'd been 
singing and writing songs up to that point, maybe I could be an actor. So I finally got up out of my seat, walked to the registrar's office and changed all my majors from psychology to drama. Um, it was one of those moments, I think we all have them, where we can go, you know, make the left turn or make the right turn. Uh, I think I made the right turn um, and, and here I am. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been an interesting journey, a journey that's led me to this wonderful sort of rectangle called Inside the Black Box. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I uh, went to a play when I was 12 um, on Gary Street at ACT, and um, it was for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And to see all of those Black women on stage and those um, profound monologues, um, I knew that this is what I needed to do. And I had affirmed it. Right. And then um, I actually, at 14, I spun a globe in my room and I landed on New York and I said, that's where I'm going. I'm going to New York. So I love theater. That is my, that's like a heartbeat for me. So um, it all started there. Oh my goodness. Well, for Joe, looking back, uh, which role or roles do you consider were your big breaks into the entertainment world? Cause you know, you hear it on the news and stuff, but for, for the actor, for yourself, like what do you think was Kind of the moment that you're like oh i've arrived <laughs> oh see i'm gonna steal a line from um felicia rashad i don't know that i've arrived i think i'm approaching um mm. <laughs> uh, I, I just well i i think that you know there are moments that that were certainly glorious uh, brother from another planet for me was one of those films that i just will always love it will always probably be my my favorite film um doing eli um rowan pope uh, was spectacular. It was very much like doing theater and film all at the same time. Um, and now doing this, mm -hmm. which is a very different thing for me to do, to be a co-host on a live television show is yet another experience. And they all sort of mean and have different weights for and have different meanings all at the same time. Um, but I don't know that I've quite yet, uh, as Felicia said for, of herself, uh, arrived at any particular point. Right. Well, interesting, because now you both are, 